Hi, how's everybody doing today? My name is Noah Gift, and I'm excited to talk today about some of these topics uh, because they're going to address, uh, I think, some emerging things that I'm working at at Duke, uh, some of the things that are happening in our industry, and also uh, it's going to be fun to talk about uh, the fact that I've been with PyCon, I guess, almost 20 years. I think the first talk I gave was, was I, I feel like I'm getting pretty old, it was, was almost 20 years ago. Um, so first, let me talk a little bit about my background to just set some uh, stage for the other things I want to talk about. So I started off working in the TV and film industry uh, in, in Hollywood. My dad had a, a television production company, so a lot of coders today you know, we're working at, for example, uh, you know, their dad's software company. I just happened to work in TV and film. And it was a really good experience for me to understand the rapid evolution of an industry. Uh, and when I was 18, I was working for ABC Network News as an editor. And I was editing live news and patching it in. And it was, it was such a kind of aha moment, like, wow, this is, all this technology is, is really driving our lives. And then as I got uh, more involved in the film industry later in my career, I realized that things had gone digital. They'd gone analog to digital. So I'll get, I'll get back to that in a second. And then I worked at Caltech uh, from 2000 to 2003. And that's actually when I first learned Python. The kind of a funny story was that I was playing Ultimate Frisbee at lunch. And uh, Titus Brown, who's uh, also a big Python person, was, was always talking about Python after we would, you know, uh, play an Ultimate Frisbee game. And I, I felt like there was peer pressure, like, I better learn this Python or, or people aren't going to like me at Caltech. So that's how I kind of got started with, with Python. And that was a good period in time, about 2003, where all the analog had shifted to digital. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to go back into uh, TV and film here. And I had a pretty good run where for about 10 years or so, I worked on what I would call uh, data engineering. So from uh, you know that period of time, like 2003 to 2013, I worked on the movie Avatar, uh, did uh, pipelines in Python, uh, worked on Sony ImageWorks pipeline, pipelines for their, their animated movies, Disney Future Animation. So in many ways, I think uh, the data engineering with Python really started in the TV and film industry, and that was one of the innovators. And then later, I worked, I did my tour of duty in San Francisco, spent 10 years there, worked at startups. The last job I had, I, I built a, a sports social network. And, you know, we had a shot at greatness, like a lot of startups didn't work out. And then recently, from about, let's say, 2016 to current, I've been teaching at universities, teaching at Duke in particular. Uh, I'm executive in residence and part-time part uh, professor. And so I teach large language models, uh, MLOps, data engineering, cloud computing. Uh, and I also had a personal goal for myself where I wanted to write 10 books. I wrote 10 books. I'm never writing a technical book again. I'm done. Um, uh, but I, I've also been working on Coursera next. And so the stuff that I focused on the last few years is, is building uh, about a master's degree worth of content that I currently have produced. Uh, so that was a fun experience to, in a way, like design what I think uh, an AI masters would be, and I'm, and I'm still going. I still got a little bit more time under my belt. So that's the, the background here. Let's talk a little bit about MLOps, something I'm very passionate about. Uh, so MLOps, I think, is an interesting uh, topic because it means so many things to so many different people, but 
what I think is interesting about MLOps is that there's this rule of 25. And so 25% of it is going to be DevOps. 25% uh, of it is going to be data. 25% of it is, is going to be your models. And then 25% is business. And you can't extract one of those things and put it away and just say, well, I like the models, or I like the DevOps, or I like the data, or I like the business. You have to have all four components to practice uh, MLOps. I think a good example with the business side is it would be easy to say, oh, look, you know, look at these models. They're perfect. But if your company is not making revenue, it doesn't matter. Like if you solve the wrong problem, uh, it doesn't matter. And I also I think that a lot of times people get confused about uh, MLOps and that they don't realize that DevOps is a requirement. If you don't have DevOps, you cannot do MLOps. So if you don't have continuous integration, testing, formatting, you have a notebook somewhere that's in you know somebody's uh, repo, that's not MLOps. I don't know what else that is. That's something else, but that's not MLOps. You have to have automation. You have to have automated testing. And I think in particular, notebooks, you know, I think a lot of people have talked about this, are not production software. It's not the, the use case for a notebook. Now, again, I've been in Python for a long time, a huge fan of Python, but I also think it's important to say, this is what Python is good at. This is what Python has comp competing technologies against. And in particular, I would say lack of binary deployments for production software really isn't a great fit for models because a model, uh, if it's a 10 gigabyte model, for example, could fit pretty well in a binary deployment story. They statically link the model into the binary, you give it to somebody, you're done. Also, the CPU and memory is something that is, wasn't a design feature of Python. Uh, for example, uh, with memory, in some cases, and I'll talk about this later, you can get you know 70 times uh, better energy efficiency uh, with with uh, other languages than Python. Also, concurrency. We know for years and decades people talk about concurrency. That isn't really the, the strength. And I would say this is another one that I don't know how many people have talked about enough, but this, I would call it the, the virtual environment productivity tax, which it really is a tax. So if you have a hosted environment, I think Python is beautiful. Like if you have a CoLab notebook or SageMaker or something, but the fact that you have to constantly be iterating over here isn't, isn't, in my opinion, a great pattern for production software. And then also modern languages, right? There's modern techniques with security typing. Uh, and then finally, packaging. I think the big issue, if I have, well, first of all, I have no influence on how Python is developed. But I would say there should be one and only one way to do packaging. And it should come from the vendor of the language. Multiple competing solutions, I think, is ultimately wasn't a great strategy, in my opinion. So let's talk about Rust a little bit. Some of the benefits of Rust, binary deployment, you get it for free. So by default, you actually do cargo run, you get a binary. Uh, performance, uh, the performance of Rust is just exceptional. Uh, it's, it's as good as it gets. And then if we also talk about uh, safe concurrency. So because of the way that the compiler was built in Rust, concurrency is actually one of the safest ways uh, uh, that you can do concurrency of any language. Because of the borrowing and the ownership model, uh, you automatically have these great patterns. And the library is built, like for example, Rayon, really give that for you. And then in terms of security as well, uh, it's a modern language that was designed for security. And I think this is a topic that isn't talked about enough, which is that we, we do care about security. And, and security is a critical issue, and it's something we should be talking about. And then finally, even though it's an emerging um, language and some of the things that it's doing are still behind Python. 
uh, I think MLOps, LLM ops, and data engineering libraries are exceptional. Uh, and I'll talk about a little bit of those in a second. So if you're a Python programmer, uh, you know, I, I just want to talk about some of the key co components. And I, I think as someone who's been in Python for a long time, it's easy to get tribal and say, I only do Python or I only do Rust, or, but it's almost like saying, I only eat rosemary. Well, rosemary is amazing. Rosemary is good with chicken. It's good with, with uh, potatoes, right? It's the combination sometimes that can make the, the great meal. And in particular with Rust here, you see that there's a general structure that you get when you create a Rust project. And I think this is something that would be amazing if in the future world of Python, if there was a default tool that can include a, a general project structure. And I would even say that the directory structure of Rust could potentially be a replacement for Python virtual environments if the language itself installed uh, a packaging solution that was directory based. I think it could be interesting. But I think that's one of the strengths of Rust is that you get this uh, automatic creation. You get binaries created automatically, project uh, dependencies automatically, and then you get the type and memory safety. And then if you are building for command line interface, for example, I think that's really where Rust has a strength. And in many ways, I wouldn't say this is a competition with Python. It's just uh, a, a, a synergy, right? There's a lot of stuff that we'll, I'll talk about that Python is exceptional at. Now, the, let's get to the real problem for a Python programmer, which I'm very sim sympathetic to. The reason I started programming in Python is that it's beautiful, right? I mean, that's the thing about Python. It's easy to look at. It's, you can think in Python. Like, uh, I could have dreams sometimes where I'm just thinking about different language features of Python. Uh, Rust is not like that. Rust is ugly. And it actually is like eating your vegetables. Like, it is a very... Awful language to look at when you first start, uh, you know, building it. The syntax is going to be harder. Uh, the compiler is just really mean. It's like a, a bully. It's just constantly like telling you things like, "Hey, what is this? You know, wh why are you why are you picking on me? This is really hard." Um, but I think two things that are game changers to me is the one I talked about before, which is the cargo ecosystem. Really is uh, stunningly good, and that's one of the ways that. I would say it gets rid of the productivity tax of the Python virtual environment, where it's like, ooh, even if there was no other tools available, the fact that I don't have to say virtual EMV source, deactivate all this back and forth, or use some other competing tool is amazing. And I think generative AI, it is actually a little bit over overpiped, but it is, a, it is an amazing technology. And for a language like Rust, where the compiler is super mean, hallucinations actually are not as big of a deal with uh, a language like Python where it, they are a big deal, right? Because you can have runtime errors. So let's talk a little bit about generative AI. Um, there's a lot of different analogies for generative AI, but I'm gonna use the one that I think is a pretty good one, which is like a trampoline for your code. So when I was a teenager, I remember uh, one of my friends had a trampoline and I, I was, at one point in time trying to do a backflip. And I just could never do it. I just could never do a backflip. And I, I tried going to the ocean and like, you know, doing a backflip in the ocean. I still was like, ah, oh, I'm too scared. I'm gonna hurt myself. And then I went over to the house and they had a trampoline and I tried it and I was like, wow, you can actually do a backflip. So it was the it was the acceleration of the tool that let me understand the form. And also I would say get afraid of 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 like seriously hurting myself 
that was that was the real part of the backflip that I was scared about. It was like, whoa, I I, I really don't want to hurt myself. And so it, it let me, you know, come over the fear of of doing this this technique that is a little bit dangerous. So I think that's really what generative AI does with a language like Rust. Now, I also want to talk a little bit about something that I experienced as a professor. So I've taught thousands of students to program. And the one that always, I guess, makes my uh, irritation, you know, you know, come up a little bit is this concept of, you know, what do we actually care about? Like what's useful and like what's useless suffering? And really at the end of the day, and this is why Python is such a great language, is that it takes logic and it simplifies it in a, in a way that is maybe the simplest possible way you could express an idea in Python. And, but the problem is that a lot of time when you're teaching a new student about Python, they're not even focusing on the essentials, they're focusing on useless suffering. Suffering where there is no gain, you're just you know, uh, irritable, you, you think that this is the journey that's gonna really give you some kind of advantage. So I would say like runtime errors, packaging systems, um, boilerplate code, logic errors, virtual environments, setting up your development environment is useless suffering because all of these things are gonna be constantly changing with new techniques. And then the other one to be aware of is we have some optional but useful suffering. And so object-oriented programming, that's another beautiful thing about Python. In fact, I would say it's a huge strength is it's optional. You don't have to do object-oriented programming. A lot of times new programmers, the first thing they do is someone teaches them about classes and then they start doing multiple inheritance, and then they say like, look, I, I, I can't program, I'm a bad programmer. No, you're doing optional, <laughs> optional suffering that you may need it, you may not need it, but you need to focus on the, uh, the essential. So that's my way of saying that generative AI can really harness uh, a, a lot of the suffering so that it's useful. Now, that's the positive. Now let me tell you what I think is some of the negative. So, I don't know why I'm the only one who's skeptical here of what's been happening uh, in the startup industry, but I like to call it the Ponzi as a service. So you have in the in the world of Gen AI, you make you make stuff, we'll just take it. And then in terms of the tech startups, we have all these people who are saving the world. You know, it is kind of strange, isn't it? Is there anybody that's a that has been convicted lately of fraud that wasn't saving the world? It seems like there's a pattern there. Uh, and then we also have crypto, which, you know, I think a lot of people are very skeptical of crypto because every time someone does a Super Bowl commercial, there's a, there's there's some kind of a bad problem that occurs, and, and people lose lose their life savings. So I think if you're saying that you're going to replace money and you and you have this amount of criminal action, there's something going on there. And then also, you know, if you look at the negative externalities, which I think is not really talked about enough with startups is that just because you created something like uh, a nuclear power plant and you got the benefit from it and the maybe the people in your town got the benefit, if you take that nuclear waste and dump it down the river, that's a negative externality, right? Other people are getting that nuclear waste and they're not getting any benefit. I think that's gambling, for example. Is that useful? We don't know, right? Uh, and then if you look at some of the other things here, there's a lot of, you know, synchronization with universities. That's something I, I see a lot. We also see that uh, maybe some startups change the ownership uh, equity kind of on the fly. And then the big one, and then they push the risk as well to the employees, but the, the VCs have a portfolio and they have no risk or essentially no risk. 
but the big one, and this is the one I, 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 would, I would tell a lot of people to look into, is the concept of regulatory entrepreneurship. So regulatory entrepreneurship, uh, if you just Google it, there's a, there's a pretty big paper on it. It's basically, let's break the law on purpose to make money, then let's go lobby people in Congress to change the laws, and then that's my company. So I think what we're seeing with generative AI is the same pattern, right, with Uber, with Airbnb, et cetera. It doesn't mean that these tech startups don't do some good in the world, but I think we have enough historical data. A lot of us are data scientists. Let's look at the signal coming from the data, and let's like act on the signal, which is we should exercise caution, especially if someone says, I'm building AGI, I'm helping humanity. I think we need to be very careful about uh, all this. So uh, this is what I tell students a lot, is when I mention, hey, we should be careful about which tools we should pick for generative AI, a lot of students will say, oh, everything's bad. All companies are bad. Or if you talk about some kind of political issue, all, pe all, all politicians are bad. It's like, that's, that's, a, that's a very weak ethical argument, right? Is that, no, we can weigh things, right? This is, in fact, one of the foundational images of justice is we have scales, right, where you weigh things. So all things are not equal, right? The other thing is that when you're looking at different technologies, you should look at multiple, now I'm not saying this is what you should do. This is the one I look at is, what is the corporate structure? Is it a public benefit company? Well, okay, maybe I should believe them more if they're gonna solve you know, some huge issue for humanity. Wait, you're a for-profit company and, they're, and, and, and it's all closed source? Well, maybe. Uh, also the leaders, what have the leaders done before? If you've practiced regulatory entrepreneurship for decades, now you're not gonna pr practice regulatory entrepreneurship? So I think this is the caution I think that people need to, meet, need to look at. So let's talk now uh, about the, the positives here a little bit, is that my workflow for Rust, and this was really the light bulb that, that, that went off, was that, hey, I want to find the meanest language that bullies me the most and tells me I'm a bad software engineer. And so I found Rust when I want to do generative AI. And so the workflow that I typically do is I do a cargo project structure first. I'll have the different components. I, I am a fan of the makefile concept. I do the same thing in Python, where you have this process of building, formatting, linting, testing your code. What's interesting about generative AI, because it's, a, it's really designed for a feedback loop, is that when you get a suggestion from generative AI, my opinion is you should format immediately. Because just by slightly changing the, and this is, I would say, with Python or Rust, you're going you're gonna to slightly change the, the suggestion and you're improving your code. The same with linting. Again, with Python or Rust, why would you not lint your code after you've actually got a, a, a feedback from the generative AI? Then I also will use either a different technology like Claude or, or, or um, the AWS Code Whisper to actually just add another signal. So, so I think if you have a very good structure for your project, you get the most benefits out of Generative AI. So let's talk a little bit about Python, though, because this is a Python conference. And let's talk about the stuff that is amazing about Python. So, and, and again, as teaching students, th these are the things that I see quite a bit where students are, are really have gotten the message that Python is a great language, is that the data science libraries are impressive, right? There, there really isn't a, a competing solution with the depth of, of the data science libraries in Python. Uh, for prototyping, it's, it's impossible to prototype quicker than a language uh, like Python. 
again, you can think in code, right? You can have an idea and it just comes out of your fingertips. Uh, in fact, in many ways, is generative AI even helping you if you're an expert on Python because the syntax of Python is so good. Also, the deep learning libraries, PyTorch, uh, TensorFlow are amazing. Uh, and then I th these are the ones I think that are not talked about enough is teaching and API documentation. We're blessed in that pretty much any API anywhere, you're going to come across a Python API, uh, API documentation. So if you want to learn something, you everybody should learn Python, even if you don't like Python and you want to program in C Sharp or something like that, the, the API documentation is so amazing. And then for teaching, I, I've heard lots of different competing uh, topics about teaching, but I think Python is amazing for teaching because again, you're eliminating the useless suffering and you're focusing on the logic. Now, let's talk a little bit about those success. What, if you look at exponential growth, exponential growth does by definition cannot always be exponential. So now we're at a point now where, and, and I, this is more of a question is, are there any language features that are going to increase adoption or, or another way to put at it is 30 years of success with Python is amazing. I mean, it's the, t the top language in the world. I, I mean, wh why, isn't, why isn't the best good enough, right? I mean, this is an amazing journey that I, I was a little bit a part of. So, but there's some problems, right, with, you know, should, should we have true threads, the performance, a little bit of the packaging. So I think it's more of, you know, celebrating the success of Python versus maybe trying to reinvent it and make it a, a new uh, language. And so I would say it's a good question with any data scientist is, is when is the peak? When is the peak? Of, and, and the peak could be everybody in the world <laughs> that's a programmer knows it. I would say that's a very amazing journey for Python. But what I think is a, is would be like a, uh, a, a supercharged tool would be to add a little bit of Rust with your Python as well. So let's talk a little bit about mixing Python and Rust here. And, and, and this is a pattern. I am obsessed with the command line. I've been obsessed with the command line for almost 25 years. And I think this is a very cool story for Python, which is that you could write computationally uh, expensive code in Rust very easily with PyO3 bindings, link in the .so, and then the library that I like, because I like fancy libraries, is Python Fire. You basically, you don't even have to write any code. You can essentially slurp in the Rust code and automatically create a command line tool. I think this is as good as it gets in my opinion of like, if you're obsessed with Python, you love Python, but you wanna just kind of add some secret sauce to it, I think this is an amazing uh, uh, technique. Now, the other thing we're seeing as well with, with, uh, with Python is it's unavoidable. You're gonna be using Rust tools in Python. In fact, the obvious one to start off with is, is the linting. Why would you wait for 60 seconds to lint your code if it could be linted sub-second? And that's what we're seeing with tools like Ruff, which is, a, which is just amazingly fast linter. The other thing too is that if you're, if you're bound, not just by CPU, but if you're bound by memory, which is something you're, you're bound with with things like AWS Lambda, that's where I think Rust also comes into play. And we see that with things like, like polars. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about uh, MLOps here next, which is the, the, the area where I spend the majority of my time. So if you're interested in large language model and putting those models into use, my opinion, Rust is actually the best solution for that. And, and here's like a really good example is if you wanted to make this ridiculously fast but cheap 
um, AWS Lambda and maybe call it in Python, right? You have a command line tool that invokes it. This would be a really cool pattern is you would use something like Polars. You would get, you know, millisecond response. You could even target the ARM environment to save money. And so, it, it again, it's almost like putting those, uh, those, that .so file inside of your PyO3 command line tool is you could slurp in uh, th this, this particular feature. Now, let's talk a little bit as well about in LLM ops that I think it's important to think about a cloud-based development environment. Now, there's a lot of stuff going on this slide, and I'll, I'll share it with you later, but the, the, the advantage of for large language models is I, I think maybe a lot of you have probably tried to run a large language model. Well, if you don't have an NVIDIA GPU, have fun, right? So this is where the GPU-enabled workflow becomes very amazing. And what we're seeing as well is that we're seeing an emergence not just of the, uh, the notebook-based workflow with GPUs, but we're also seeing editors. And I think this is a, an emerging thing that we haven't totally seen yet, is why don't I have a cloud-based uh, editor that is actually has GPU enabled with it? We see only, only the notebook. Now, one of the things that I'm, that I'm focused on here uh, with the students at Duke, and actually Duke is going to uh, become more and more involved with this, is actually, I would say, almost creating a solution that was like the old days of Linux and Windows, where why would you use Linux? I mean, I actually like Windows Server, by the way. I like IAS, I like C Sharp. I also like Linux more. And I like that there's a solution that's available. What I see with large language models is that with tools like Rust Candle, if you haven't tried it, it's shockingly good, is that once you've done a compilation and you target a GPU, you get a binary, you're done. All you have to do is do dot slash, dot, you know, binary uh, dash dash prompt, and you can start running, you know, open source competitors to OpenAI. Um, you can you can run your own uh, coding assistants. All of these are actually available because of the inherent features of Rust. So one of the things that I'm working with Duke students on is actually uh, figuring out a way to evangelize every single recipe that you would ever need. How do I set up a build system? How do I do ethical sourcing of data? How do we uh, do the build system on all cloud platforms? Uh, and eventually, one of the things that we're also thinking about is, could we even do like the old days of Linux, where if you remember how Linux first was distributed, there was a .so, there was an ISO file, and there was mirrors at public universities. Can you imagine if, in fact, there's just binaries that are available that, that have there may be a, a binary that links statically links in the model, and you could say for grandpa, grandma, hey, here we go. Here's your own open source tool. And, and I would say that related to this is what I see happening that kind of ties everything together is that in perfect competition, all profit leads to zero. And that's why the, the, the operating system uh, uh, industry, there was proprietary operating systems. I've used the mainframes, IBM, HPUX, Solaris, et cetera. But what, what happened was in perfect competition, all the profit diminished. So I think we're also going to see this with right now, you see that there's you know, proprietary uh, operating systems. But one of the things about the hype cycle that I would, I would ask everybody to really pay attention to is, why is it that you're trying to do attempted regulatory capture right now? Like we just got started with, with um, large language models and people are going to Congress and saying we need a license. To, it's like saying I need a license for linear regression. Like this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. 
And, and then if you look, though, what it could be is that there is no advantage. There is, there's nothing. Everybody can do linear regression. Everybody can do k-means clustering. So eventually, this is what I think is going to happen, and I want to be part of it, is I want to reduce all profit to zero. doesn't mean that people aren't going to make profit as training and services, integrations, et cetera. Uh, so how could we do this? One of the ways that we could do this is by accelerating the Gen AI profit to zero approach and so you know we could in this again i'm personally doing this and i'm doing this with duke uh, university as well is is i want to create as many uh, example recipes like reverse engineer every single thing you need to do for large language models uh, also uh, not having specialized services or vendor uh, necessary at all not that vendors aren't great hey it's, it's in in competition you want all kinds of solutions but ultimately, I think having solutions that have no vendors specifically baked into them are an advantage. And then I think this is the big one too that, I, that I'm kind of shocked at us tech people uh, for not really diving into more is this idea that like, because I took it, it means that, that it's okay. Like it's a very strange you know, mentality, which is, well, yeah, we found these pirated data sets on the internet and somebody else broke the law, so it's okay. Well, no, it's not okay. It's not okay to pirate people's data. That's disrespectful. Uh, in fact, you, you need to actually have people's consent. So I think ethically sourced data could be a huge competitive advantage, in fact, is that I think a lot of people are like, hey, anything you do in tech is okay as long as it works. But uh, the, the end result of that is that you could compete on saying, look, we're gonna ethically handle sourcing data and that's how we're gonna compete against you. And then also having like, you know the 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 mentality of free and open source software, and actually have nonprofits, libraries, universities actually help with this. And I would say I'll leave on this. And I I don't know if we have time for questions or not. I, I'm here. You can ask me afterwards. But I mean, imagine the dystopian world where you know when I was a kid, I, I would go to the library every single week, and I would get books and I would read books, and that was my source of information. I mean, can you imagine having a world? Where, where you actually have to call somebody's chatbot that's proprietary, that somebody owns, and that's all source of information, that's a very scary and disturbing world. So hopefully I think enough people go, look, we, we actually can do these things ourselves. We don't need, not that, that all people that are doing proprietary technology are bad people, but that I don't see the future being a great future if there's a chatbot that somebody controls and that's how all information is propagated throughout humanity. I think that's, that's not a good strategy and we can all be part of a solution. So uh, that, that's it for my talk. Um, I also have uh, a bunch of links here. So, so I, even though I, I did a lot of like jabbering and you know, pontificating, this is all code, all hard code, hundreds and hundreds of recipes uh, uh, on like candle cookbook, Rust MLOps, also Python, I have my opinions for Python for MLOps, data engineering, uh, Lambda, et cetera. All right. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Do we have any time for questions or we're good? Okay. Thank you so much.